Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models Episode 18. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Today is part three, the final part of our trilogy on the guard. We're going to be talking about the retention phase. This is where your guard is almost past and you're trying to scramble to retain it. Essentially, your guard is past and we're going to be using guard retention movements to uh, recover uh, wedges and frames, allowing us to retain our guard. And once you've listened to this episode, you basically know everything there is to know about the guard. I mean, you can go on Amazon and order yourself a black belt, as far as I'm concerned. There's <laughs> there's really nothing else to cover, so you are good to go. Yeah, do, do one of those self-promotions. <laughs> yeah. I deserve this. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, just to recap what we've already covered in episode 16, we talked about the engagement phase of guard. And this is actually something that a lot of people have come up to me since and talked about and, and thanked us for covering because it is a highly underlooked area of the game. We talked then about the maintenance phase of guard, which is probably what you're thinking of most of the time when you think of the guard. And today we're going to be talking about retention. So you're up, usually this means the oh shit phase. <laughs> yeah. Usually this means means that your opponent has passed by your legs. They are now trying to neutralize your arms. And if they succeed at doing that, then your guard is effectively passed. Now, when you talk about the guard, it's important to understand that there are different layers of guard. As the guy playing the guard, you put up a degree of weapons and your opponent needs to get by those one by one. And if they succeed at getting through all of them, then they have passed your guard. Now, in almost every form I can, of guard that I can think of, the first air line of defense is going to be the legs. There might be some weird inverted form of guard where it's actually your hands that are the first line of defense, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. But generally speaking, the first thing your opponent has to do is get by your legs. Secondly, then they have to get by your arms. And finally, they have to cr- crush you and neutralize and stabilize the position. There's kind of three different phases. Usually, one Once they've got past that first line of defense, meaning they've got past your legs, that normally is the beginning of the retention phase of guard. Um, You can also call this the recovery phase of guard. I mean, I kind of use the two interchangeably, but basically it means that you are now on the losing end of this game. And if you don't take corrective action fast, you're going to wind up getting past. Yeah. And and passing the guard, um, thinking about what our goals are, generally our goals are, like Steve said, you want to get past the legs. Um, A good goal for for me, depending on the type of pass you're doing, I like to get chest to chest connection. And uh, like we've discussed in previous podcasts, we want to separate the legs from the arm. So denying our opponents the ability to connect knee elbow uh, 
frames is going to be a really big factor in whether or not you retain your uh, uh, sorry you maintain the position once you pass the guard because guys that are really good at inverting generally move their hips a lot they hip out and they try and connect their knees into their elbows it's what it's what i do when someone tries to pass my guard um and what people that are really good at inverting try to do so it's really important to to be able to solidify the position on top by placing portions of your body as wedges uh, in between, basically next to your opponent's hip, whether it's going to be your hip, your leg, your uh, sometimes your arm, or even your head. Uh, if you, I like to transition to north-south a lot of the time and use my head as a, a wedge and drop my shoulders over their hips. So basically, it's impossible for them to bring their knees back into their elbows because my upper body is so heavy there. It's uh, it's a pretty effective way to solidify the guard pass. The elbow-knee connection was a real breakthrough for me once I started using that both to pass the guard and also to retain the guard. It's a useful principle on both ends of the equation. So talking about this a little bit and tying this back to earlier episodes, we, we talked previously about the principle of limb coiling, which basically means like don't extend your arms, don't extend your legs unless you have a good reason to and you know that you're safe doing so. The elbow-knee connection is a very specific form of limb coiling that is especially important when you're dealing with the guard, both on the top and the bottom. Now, what, what it really means is just what the name says. You want to try to get your elbows and your knee as close together as possible. You're you don't actually need to have your elbow directly on top of your knee. I mean, that actually results in kind of weird and uncomfortable posture if you do that. So it's you don't really need to do that. It's just a guide. Basically, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make sure that the 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 pocket where your, your tummy is, is not something that your opponent can access. Because when your opponent is trying to pass your guard, if they can put a wedge against your stomach, they can basically prevent you from bringing your, your legs and your arms back together. And that's kind of how they cut you in half. When someone is trying to pass your guard, really what they're doing is they're trying to cut you in half. They're taking away your legs so you have fewer weapons at your disposal. By maintaining an elbow-knee connection and not letting them cut you in half like that, you, that alone is often enough to prevent them from completing a pass. Did you just say tummy? I did say tummy. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's been uh, hanging around with their toddler too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, hey, it's it's like the soft, weak, you know, exposed underbelly area. And if, if you let your opponent <laughs> put a lot of weight on that, it really, not only does it hinder your movement, but it prevents you from bringing your elbows and your knees back together. It forces you to be extended out. And that's, at that point, you're basically done if your opponent yeah. does that. I, I, I can't remember who it was. It was some... Uh, really legendary Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter. I think it was Cyborg. I can't remember, but I was listening to his concept about maintaining guard and regarding, and he's saying, you know, you want to fight like the cats and the dogs? You know, you bring up your, your knees to your elbows, because if you ever see cats fighting, we've mentioned before, they always bring their lower half up to protect their vital mm -hmm. organs, yeah. and uh, it's actually the same for for humans. When we, when we grapple, we try and, you know, we're covering our, our stomachs and our, our vital organs and creating like uh, frames all around them or uh, like a force field around your body. And then mm -hmm. having that knee elbow connection is a really efficient way to, uh, especially if your partner's putting their weight on you to bear a lot of their weight rather than like a bench press type movement. Um, one of the, one of the strategies that I like to do when passing the guard is 
Um, basically, I guess the simple way to put it would be to, when you pass, try to pass all the way to north-south. Mm-hmm. And what that provides you with is uh, it keeps your legs far away from your opponent's legs. So if I just pass uh, someone's guard and I just try and hold side control there's a decent chance that they're going to be able to turn in if they're really good at half guard or, you know, Lucas Leitch guard, they're going to be able to catch the end of your leg possibly and bring you back into a half guard of some sort and be really frustrated or insert a butterfly hook, whatever. Uh, if you go all the way to north-south, then you deny your opponent the ability to to capture your leg inside of uh, like a half guard or, or whatever. Um, and then my goal from there is usually I drop my head right on their hip right on the ground next to the hip, pardon me, and I drop my shoulder right on their on their abdomen. And what that does, again, is prevents them from incorporating their knees back to their elbows. You'll see a lot of high-level guys do this. Gordon Ryan does this. Yuri Simos does this. So that heavy pressure downward with their shoulders down. And then their opponent can frame with their arms on, on your hips, but your hips are already pretty elevated. And because you can't incorporate your knees to your elbows, it's kind of irrelevant that you can bench press their weight off you. And then basically Basically, what I do next when I'm on top is as I feel them framing my hips away with their arms, I start shifting my weight in such a way that I can actually isolate their limbs, like maybe dropping a knee on shoulder. And uh, and then you can pin their levers and start looking for attack. So it's a really fantastic way to, to solidify guard passing is just look to go to the north-south position. Yeah, I find against guys who are really, really good at getting out from side control, especially guys who are really hard to hold there or are good at getting up to turtle. The problem is once you pass them, you try to secure side control, but it's just really hard against yeah. those guys. They're always moving. There's yeah, always going to be yeah. that like 10, 20 seconds against someone who who really values their guard. They're not going to give up for at least 10 seconds and yeah. then they might take a rest if you can settle them down. Yeah, so an alternative there, rather than trying to pin your opponent in side control, is what you mentioned, to try to just keep going right past side control into north-south. And, and that is a powerful position because because, like you said, your opponent's legs are of very minimal use from north-south, unless they're doing some crazy upside-down gymnastics. And if they try to bench press you from north-south, just by turning the angle back and forth, you can defeat their hands pretty easily. Yeah, and you can also, one thing I really like about going to the north-south is depending on which side your opponent tries to turn up and get up from, um, they're giving you back exposure. So you can choose to go to either side. Uh, the quick, correct way to regard from a north-south is to actually create space and invert your knees and bring your, your legs back into the picture rather than try to come up on a, an underhook because you're just in no position to do that um, from that position. The important thing to take away here is that when you're talking about guard retention, you're in a pretty bad spot because your opponent has a lot more options than you do. They are driving in at you with a lot of force. They don't have to just stop at trying to pin you. They can slingshot around. They can go up to neon belly. So your reaction time has to be pretty solid when you detect that your opponent is starting to pass. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of think of three different primary types of defenses when it comes to retention. I, I, In my mind, at least, there's three ways that you can attempt to retain your guard. Number one is when the your opponent's force vector is coming at you. And, and we talked about this a lot in episode 15, identifying the force vector in the leading edge. When your opponent is driving force towards you, you can either block and frame against the leading edge. Uh, usually, this means you frame against them and you hip escape. Mm-hmm. Or... 
you can try to redirect the leading edge. Mm -hmm. um, usually this means, you know, you try to like go for a dogfight or something. So you try to go underneath the guy so that his, his force is not coming directly at you anymore. Or the third approach is you focus on keeping your elbow knee connection. So basically rather than trying to stop the force vector, you just shell up like a turtle and make it really, really hard for your opponent to, to cut you in half. Um, those are kind of the three ways that I find you can defend against an incoming pass attempt. And depending on your opponent, how big they are, how strong they are, how fast they are, and what type of pass they're trying to do, the correct approach is going to vary from situation to situation. But almost every retention defense that you can think of is going to fall into one of those three buckets. Mm -hmm. It's... Um Again, I've mentioned it before in previous episodes. Uh, when my uh, professor Rob was teaching me about you know guard and fixing fixing holes that I had in my guard a few years back, he was saying, you know, I don't even want you to think about your guard as like a submission tool or a sweeping tool. Your goal is strictly just get back to guard. So yeah. basically, finding that safe distance where you can reset the scenario and and enter uh, the guard again on your own terms. That's the goal, especially mm -hmm. when we're when we're focusing on guard retention. You know, I see. So many guys come in and uh, they get their guards passed and then they try to do like a sumigayashi when their guard is fully passed. And mm. Sometimes it is work. Like there is some validity to that. But nine times out of ten on a really high level opponent, it's going to be very difficult to to do such an attack. It's it's better, like you said, to establish a frame and then maybe get your hips mobile. So I like the way you break it down into those three things. Um, again, my my take on it is very similar. Uh, usually, as soon as I address the leading edge, I'm going to set a, a, a frame and an appropriate post in that force vector so that I can now get up into base. Uh, hopefully, I'll be in base on that post and I'll be able to extract my hips to a safe distance where I can now... Uh, take more frames, right? And uh, really important to understand that there's a, a whole series of guard retention movements that any high-level practitioner needs to learn. I recommend the BJJ uh, Formula app has, again, we've mentioned it constantly on this podcast. There's four parts. The guard app teaches lots of great movements. There's Gramby rolls, which are, you know, basically like a an inverted, an inverted regard, which any competitor needs to know. Um, you're going upside down and, and putting your opponent back inside your guard. There's also going to be like a collar tie series where maybe your opponent's double-legged you and taking you to the ground. How can you get back into base, set a, set a frame, and then extract your hips back? Um, again, a really great resource for that would be uh, Mar Marcelo Garcia does this really, really excellently. And then, of course, uh, your classic like shrimping regards, you know, turning into your opponent, being able to get back into the half guard, being able to get back to your butterfly guard and um you know there's so many ways to regard like we mentioned earlier in the north south you really do need to have an inverted type of game to be able to regard from a position like north south or neon belly yeah, with, with north-south, unless you are really good at inverting and you have a lot of flexibility, the, one of the reasons why passing to north-south is so effective is because it, it's hard to get out of north-south. Yeah, you know, if, if you've got me in side control, I have a lot of options, including regarding, but regarding is quite hard from north-south. So if your, your opponent has you pinned under north-south, your only option might be to recover to side control or to turtle and then to try to go from there. And that might not not always put you in a great spot. So it's it's definitely something that you need to be very, very wary of when you're defending from the bottom. Talking about these three different strategies. So 
The first strategy that we discussed earlier for retaining your guard is framing and blocking the leading edge. Now, as per what we talked about earlier, this means that you've got to identify the part of your opponent's body that is coming at you first, the part that is driving the force towards you. You have to identify the direction that your opponent is driving force towards you at, and you have to meet that angle exactly. If you meet that angle at a slight offset, you're going to get collapsed. The best example that I can provide, think of a kickstand for a bicycle. Kickstands are engineered so that when the bike is leaning over to the side, the kickstand meets the force of gravity directly. And so as a result, this really, really tiny, thin piece of metal can prop up a lot of weight. Even a motorbike, right, can be propped up by a kickstand. But if that kickstand is off at just an angle, the whole bike's going to fall over. And It's very much the same when you're trying to frame and make space against an opponent who's passing you. You've got to get that angle direct and and exactly correct. And that can be really hard sometimes. Especially when you're going against someone who's a very good guard passer. Uh, One of my strategies when I'm on top is I'm going to change my uh, force vector. So if I'm pressuring you and you establish your frame and your post, I'm going to try and move around you with my footwork. And that's going to change the angle of attack. So you on the bottom framing and trying to hip escape, you're going to have to have a, what we call an active post, the the arm that you're posting on or whatever uh, that's absorbing the force is going to need to constantly move to match the, oppo- uh, the opposing force vector. If you don't, like you mentioned, Steve, you're just going to get collapsed and you're going to get your guard passed. So um, I, I like to explain recovering from the, from guard passing s- similar to defending leg locks. You have to set uh, frames and access levers or, or uh, wedges, and you need to be able to get into post so that you can get into base. And that's, that's a really important concept that I think a lot of people that aren't good at leg lock escapes or aren't good at guard retention don't do, is they don't get up into base so that they can actually move their hips and that's one of the key uh, aspects to having control over your body and being able to extract your knee line or to be able to extract and get your hips back into position to to regard is get into base that's a good point you don't just need to frame against your opponent who's trying to drive weight against you you need to be posting on the far side and and usually the way that this translates is you've got one arm framing against your opponent and you've got the, your other arm bracing against the floor and that yeah. gives you mobility because if you fail to do that If you're just pushing against your opponent, either with your forearm or your hand, and you're not bracing on the backside, if your opponent changes the angle, you don't have the ability to move and adapt, and so you're going to get crushed. As a general rule, if your strategy is to frame against your opponent when they're driving weight towards you... I personally feel that you don't want to hang out there too long yeah. because against a good opponent, they will figure out that they need to change their angle. And if you just sit there and brace, yeah. they'll collapse you eventually. You have to work on hip escaping and making space rather than trying to just stay there and brace. Yeah, like we, we learn shrimps as kind of the fundamental, you know, hip escape movement. But what we don't talk about a lot of the time is... Um, you know, getting into base as well. So if someone is double legging me and then they, you know, they got both my legs and they're climbing up my body and I'm on my side, you know, you see beginners just, just shrimping and just trying to like, they stay on their shoulder and keep trying to frame, which is good to make space. But you know, against a good guard passer, they're going to, gravity is going to take its toll. You're going to keep getting passed. You have to be able to get up on your arm so that you can extract your hips. And, uh, 
Yeah, def- definitely when you're learning guard retention and in the recovery phase, you have to be able to get back to your elbow, at least your elbow, preferably your hand. And uh, once you get to your hand, you'll, you'll have the ability to move your hips out, hopefully. So something that I don't think there's a consensus opinion on, Matt, and I'd like to get your feedback. Let's say your opponent has gotten past your legs and they're now driving down towards you and they're, they're trying to pin you. They're about to complete the pass. So you frame against them. You've got one hand framing against your opponent or one arm framing against your opponent. You've got the other arm bracing against the ground. When you're framing against your opponent, do you like to straight arm? So you've got your, your palm basically pressing against your opponent or do you like to collapse your arm so that you're using your forearm against yeah. your opponent it's it, that's a really good question it's very situational like if uh if he's wearing a gi i might be using the gi like if he has spider guard and he's going around and i have his sleeve grip i'm gonna punch the sleeve grip straight just because that grip is gonna be hard to break and essentially i'm using his sleeve as a uh i'm isolating that his arm that lever and i'm using that lever as a frame so that i can now escape and, and recover my guard but if it's if it's like a situation where he's real close to me and he's not wearing a gi and he's double legging me i'm going to usually establish like a a collar tie or a gooseneck mm-hmm. position uh it, it, i think we discussed in in one of the previous episodes that if i if I lock my arm out straight, it's going to be a lot easier to redirect that frame. Whereas if I have my forearm as a frame, it's going to be a lot more difficult for him to because I have a, a the surface area of my frame is a lot bigger. Yeah. And I'm not fully extending it. So, you know, if I'm fully extending my arm and then you happen to redirect that lever, you pretty much have exposed that arm entirely. Whereas if I keep my elbow coiled to my body and I'm framing like a collar tie, if you redirect that frame, I might still be able to wedge my elbow in because it's still bent and, and possibly create another frame. So depending on the situation, uh, a lot of the time I'm not going to just lock out my arm straight unless I have like a grip. There's another factor too, which is that if you try to straight arm your opponent, you're introducing two joints in your frame. You've got your your wrist and you've got your elbow and if your opponent is really heavy or they make sudden movements you can actually compromise your arm right i've been wrist locked because my opponent did a fast hip switch and i was bracing with my wrist against them yeah that's that's another thing that we do a lot as beginners um because we're not aware of how we should be framing right in the moment but definitely framing with your hands can get you in trouble with your wrists yeah Uh, especially if your opponent switches their hips on you right away yeah my i mean this kind of comes back to coiling your limbs effectively. You only really want to straight arm your opponent, in my opinion, if you have high confidence that your arm is safe in doing so. That's right. And in gi, this is possible because you can latch onto the gi and you can, you know, that's a good handle and that handle may work more effectively if your arm is straighter. Um, But in a lot of cases, I like to, I prefer to brace with my forearm because then I'm I'm introducing fewer joints into my frame. My frame is more solid and it's going to be stronger. It can then bear more weight and it can hold up better if my opponent and changes their angle because I don't have as many joints in play. Yeah. Uh, Another thing to bear in mind is that when you're framing against your opponent, it doesn't have to be with your hand or your arm. You can also frame with your leg. The the knee shield probably being the most common way that you frame against your opponent to recover guard. A lot of the time, if your opponent is trying to pass, if you can hip out and, and bring your knee in and establish a knee shield, that is a super effective way to stop the pass. So it's not just your hands that you can use to block the force vector. It's also your legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and and you're going to get the most efficiency when you connect those knees to elbow. So uh, when I 
the way I teach it is I try to actually uh, make a solid line from my hand down to my to my foot so that the the forearm and the shin are almost in one cohesive yeah. line. It's a kinetic chain, right? Yeah. I mean, so to, to recap that from earlier episodes, if you've got an arm or a leg dangling out there by itself, its strength is limited. But if you can connect that arm or leg to something else, whether whether it be your another of your own limbs or even part of your opponent's body, it creates a stronger structure that's harder to manipulate. So yeah, both if you're on the top and on the bottom during a guard pass attempt, if you can keep your elbows and your knees in tight to the point where your elbows are actually touching your legs, it makes it a lot harder for your opponent to pull your arms or your legs free. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, again, we got to keep that tummy in the, in the <laughs> safe. So you don't want to expose your tummy and t- bringing your elbows and your knees together is a good way to do yeah. that. And all, all these things that we're talking about, guys, everything that we're discussing uh, comes back to posture structure base. Like, yeah, yeah. Everything that I teach in jujitsu always comes back to post structure base because we're literally just describing good structure right Mm -hmm. a a lever dangling out there is a liability for you and it's a gift for your partner and vice versa right we always want to deny the ends of our arms and legs for our to our opponent and we want to expose our opponent's arms and legs and if you can tether your your hands together and that's why it's it's natural to clasp our hands together if one of our arms is under attack because we want to reinforce it and make it stronger Mm -hmm. right Uh, when we talk about getting up into base and framing and, and having a post you know you can't just set a frame and have a post you also need to consider your posture right mm-hmm. which way are your shoulders turned because if you're uh if your chest is facing your partner but the weight is going backwards you know you're still going to get collapsed you actually have to turn your shoulders so that they're running in a straight line from your post to your frame i know it's a little bit confusing when we're when we don't have visuals and maybe later on we'll 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 have some videos for you guys but but thinking about also the position of your spine and that you're making sure that your posture is upright and strong is going to be a huge portion of this and i think this is something that maybe uh Hickson would refer to as invisible jujitsu. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's also that's one of the reasons why actually even through video, I think it might be hard to demonstrate this. It's something that you kind of know it when you feel it, right? Yeah. It's really at the end of the day, the important thing is you want to keep your spine aligned and not twisted, and that allows you to maximize the, the power that you can generate with your limbs. There, if your neck gets turned to one side or your torso gets turned, that twists your spine and it takes away a lot of your power. If one of your arms or your legs gets pulled across your body, like if you get arm dragged or leg dragged, you've probably been there before and you probably know how bad that kills your power. Um, that's all just an example of your posture and your structure being broken. So. One of the reasons why you want to keep that elbow knee connection is because it force it, it means that no matter what your opponent does, doesn't matter how quickly they run around you in circles, if you can keep your elbow and your knee connection, your opponent can never truly compromise your posture and your structure. And that means you've always got a fight, some fight left in you. Um, and that could be important in the retention phase. I mean, especially against a, uh, you know, a bigger, stronger, faster, or just frankly superior opponent, sometimes it just might not be realistic to frame against them. You know, it might just, if you're dealing with a massive weight disadvantage, yeah. sometimes framing just isn't going to work as effectively as you'd want if your opponent has good motion. But an, a good elbow-knee connection will always work, right? As long as you can prevent your opponent from pulling your arm or your leg free, that's always going to keep you in the fight to some extent. Yeah, that space between your armpit and your hip, that's the space that we're trying to protect. Otherwise, if that gets opened up, then we create an opportunity for our opponent to occupy that space with uh, a partial yeah. 
of their body. And so it, we got to always prevent that. Yeah. And once your opponent puts a wedge on your torso and, and cuts your arms away from your legs, that I mean, it's going to be real hard to get that space back because that basically means your opponent has taken side control or knee on belly or mount on you. And it's going to be really hard to get all of those weapons back into play. So the best thing to do is just to close that hole and not let them get to your tummy. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying that. If nothing else, it's going to be memorable. So let's talk then about the second strategy for retaining guard. Uh, you know, the first one is you meet the force vector, you frame against it. The second one, and, and this is one that you see a lot, I, I find, especially with really fluid guys, is rather than trying to meet the force vector and block it, you try to redirect it. So a common example of this is like if your opponent is trying to knee cut you or something, rather than trying to frame against them, you kind of boot them forward with your knee and you shoot them over and you try to go underneath them and you yeah. try to come up in like a dogfight position yeah. or or maybe you try to like leg lift them and go underneath them into single leg X. And by doing this, you're not bracing against them. You're not trying to block their force. You're just changing the position of your body and your opponent's body so that the force is going off in a different direction. It's like, um, you know, rather than trying to stop the bullet you're trying to like do the matrix dodge out of the way of the bullet is right, basically right, right. what's happening and uh, essentially like in, in those situations you're describing you're compromising your opponent's base in yeah. that situation so yeah. if my opponent is driving down like in a knee cut position but they're not you know let's say they don't have like a near side underhook on me so I know they're not gonna they're not gonna be able to be successful with that knee cut pass if you give them a boot in the butt you're actually uh, you're you're taking their force vector and you're actually helping it to go in that direction. Yeah, you're, o- you're overemphasizing it. Yeah, you're 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 sending them exactly where they're trying to go, and then you're going and underneath. you're not being there exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a great way to come up, like you said, into the dogfight or or create a scramble where now at least your opponent's weight is redirected off you, and you have a second to recompose your your guard or your sweeping attack. Good point. This is a strategy that is probably not going to work unless you apply a bit of emphasis to your opponent. If you just try to move around them, there's not really anything stopping them from just adjusting to you. But So a lot of the time what you want to do is you want to figure out which direction the leading edge is and where the force vector is going and you want to help them get there. You want to overemphasize that while making sure that you're no longer there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a good example, uh, the, probably the, the most easy to understand one is the knee cut. You know, your opponent knee cuts. And rather than just hanging out there, you give them a, a knee in the butt that gives them more force and sends them going further past you. Not not just into you, but past you. And you duck under them and take their leg for a single, right? And you can apply similar strategies with like an arm drag. If, it, if their hand is the source of, of incoming force, you can grab that and you can redirect that. Um, you see this a lot with sleeve grips, for example, where if your opponent is trying to bring their arm in to maybe go around your head, if you can grab that hand and punch it down, it really changes the force vector and allows you to get out more easily. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, when you get to a higher level and you're going against guys that are very good on top, really important that uh, you, you really assess... W- not only the force vector and you know how they're driving their pressure on but where their center of gravity is so if we can do that then we can start to set up action and reaction so if i come up and i feel like you're gonna sprawl on me or you know you you compromise uh you compensate your weight to to accommodate my movement then i'm going to try and change directions and move you and mm-hmm. and at the highest level jujitsu is a bunch of these small transitions that are very hard to see to the naked eye but uh the pushing and pulling and changing directions underneath um and taking those you know micro transitions that's how you're actually going to be able to sweep a good opponent a lot of the time you know if you just try and do like one or two sequences and you hope to get your
your sweep, you're probably going to get stuffed. So having that, uh, having that openness and that ability to adapt and change directions is, it's one of the more, uh, effective ways to play an opponent, especially in this, in the sweeping aspect. Yeah. I, I really like the term that you use to describe that micro transitions. There's a, a saying, uh, music is the space between the notes. And I think in jujitsu, that is also very similar. You know, jujitsu is the space between the positions and the moves in a lot of ways. Very rarely, so true. very rarely do you see someone do one move. You know, I'm going to do a knee cut pass and then the knee cut pass happens and we're done. And this is where I think a lot of lower level and more junior people get frustrated because they think that's how jujitsu should work. Yeah. But that's not how it works. What actually happens is there is a back and forth exchange of hundreds of little micro positions and micro movements. And then for just a fraction of a second, one person has the other person misaligned. And then that's when the magic happens. That's when you advance your position. And sometimes it might wind up being like the ugliest move ever. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know like a, a lot of the time, if you look at like, if you look at two people sparring competitively, when they're doing like arm drags and throws and arm bar, you know, their moves do not look textbook. They might look ugly as sin. And that's okay because it's not about following the steps exactly. It's about doing these little micro transitions until you are in just a split second moment where you've got alignment and the other guy doesn't. And then you go, right? Yeah. I was talking about this with my class just the other day. We were drilling the engagement phase and I, you know, I was, I was sparring with someone who actually was really, really good at winning the engagement phase, but then he wouldn't go. Like he would, we would grip fight and maybe he would break my grip. And for a second, he'd have a grip on me and I wouldn't have a grip on him, but he'd just sit there. Yeah. So inevitably I would regrip and then I'd sweep. Yeah. And I, I told him afterward, you know, you had a one second window there where you could have done anything you wanted to me, but you waited. And part of jujitsu is identifying when you are, when you have alignment, and this is the micro transition there, when, when you have full alignment and you've compromised your opponent and they cannot respond to what you're doing, you've got a very slight interval where you can advance the position. And, and that's when you have to move, right? It's, it's not about like, okay, Hey, it's armbar time. I'm going to do step one and I'm just going to try to force this step. It's more about making small adjustments to break your opponent's alignment and just taking incremental little gains whenever you can. And that's a, that's a great step that you took as an instructor with the student because, um, pretty commonly when you're, when you're learning this stuff, you know, he probably had no idea that in that moment he could have passed or whatever yeah. he, or implemented his attack. So, uh, for you instructors out there, it's important to identify these situations and then give immediate feedback with the students so that they know, Hey, I had an opportunity here. This is the window that I'm looking for. We identify that window of, you know, where you've won that phase and then you can go in and implement your attack. If, if you don't show them that, then they're probably going to continue continue practicing the same way and not recognize their opportunity. And if they're competitors, it's not going to help them, uh, you know, in a tournament, they need to understand when they're at an advantage and when things are neutral. And to your point, feedback is most effective when provided very close to the action at hand. You know, if you wait until the end of the role or you wait until the next class to give feedback, the farther you wait, the harder it's going to be for that person to retain and map that that feedback back to the original action. So do we have a mental model on that? Uh, the I, I, there is a mental model on that that I haven't documented. So this is actually 
actually called the, I, I believe it's called the feedback loop. There's a, the, probably the main book about this is, um, oh, what the heck is this called? The author's name is Charles, uh, Charles Duhigg, and I think the book is called The Power of Habit. Um, I'm, I'll look it up. But basically, he talks about how, you know, if you want to, if you want to change behavior, you want to make, you know, the, you want to create a cycle of, of feedback and habits and routines mm-hmm. that feeds back into itself. Um, there's all, I, I might be wrong about citing that book. That, that's a great book, but that might not have been the exact one where I, I learned this. Um, this is actually a principle in software design as well. There is a, a design book um, by a guy, I think his name is Donald Norman, and it's called The Design of Everyday Things. And he talks about like, how do you build a good product? And if you want to build a good product, like a good piece of software or a phone or something, the, a key to good design is as soon as you do something, you give feedback back to the user that something happened and what, what to do about it. I mean, anyone who uses a piece of software or a tool knows how frustrating it is when like you press a button and nothing happens for 30 seconds. It's freaking maddening when that happens, right? And part of the reason why like modern phones are so beloved is because you, you know, you swipe your finger and it moves immediately. It's like completely seamless. You almost forget the device is there. Um, and if you want, if you're trying to coach someone, you want to provide coaching in a similar manner. You mm-hmm. want to create a feedback loop with them that is very quick where you tell them right away what they did wrong and then you give them an opportunity to fix that on the spot. The best example that I can think of that, that I've seen um, in martial arts was, I, I believe, it, ironically, it was Tito Ortiz. There was an episode of The Ultimate Fighter where his boy, <laughs> triangle. yeah, his boy got triangled <laughs> and Tito refused to let him leave the facility until he drilled the fix to the triangle. And the guy was so pissed off. He's so pissed. He was so mad. But Tito sat down and said, if you learn this now, he told the guy, if you, and, and Tito was so passionate about this. I mean, say what you will about Tito, but I came away from that episode thinking, this guy's an incredible instructor. He told the guy, if, you know, we need to cover this now, because if you learn that defense right now, you will never forget it. And so right on the spot, before they even left the, the, um, the facility, they drilled the counter to that triangle attempt. And that's the, I, I mean, granted, I don't know if in, a, in an actual MMA fight, you would necessarily want to put your guy in the spot like that. But in, in training, like Tito did, that's an incredibly powerful tool. Um, and that's, that's really the best way to provide feedback right on the spot. Make sure that it is tied to an action that, that is memorable to the, to the person who did it and make sure that they get an opportunity to then drill it and drill the corrective action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such a good point. Definitely that immediate feedback. Like I think some of the main things that my students want from me as an instructor, they keep saying, you know, I want that feedback, even if it's in the middle of a role, you know, Uh, and if you're a higher rank rolling with a lower rank and, um, you know, you feel like you don't want to be rude because you want to finish the role without, uh, you know, too much interruption it might be better for them if you actually give them that immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not going to be doing any favors for them if you if you wait to the end of the role and then, you know, you get paired up with someone else and it just goes unnoticed. Give them that immediate feedback. Yeah, th- this is a thing that I know some people don't agree with and I, I don't know what exactly what the right answer is here. I know that some people believe that you should, you should finish the role first and then you can talk about it after. But I, I think it depends a lot on what both parties want out of the role and also what the, the power discrepancy is right you know if i'm rolling with another black belt yeah it, probably it, not gonna yeah. stop unless they do something so weird and cool and it, it totally works like the, the thing is if you have to stop a roll to ask a question you're basically acknowledging that you've kind of lost right and I, i'm okay with that like if if something happens and i think man that's so cool i need to stop and understand this right now i'm happy to do that although that's a tacit admission that i kind of probably just got my ass kicked um but especially if you're a more senior guy you're really doing a service to your more junior students if you stop 
them on the spot and, and give them advice and let them work through it. And similarly, if you're a more junior guy rolling with someone who's one or two belts above you, um, you you know, don't be afraid to stop and just say, hey, look, I honestly have no idea what just happened or mm-hmm. why this didn't work. Can you please cover it for me? You know, when you're, when you're in the gym and you're training, the goal of both parties should be to learn. It should not be to win. Uh, something that I think we're going to be talking about <laughs> later in this yeah. episode, actually. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, if the goal is to learn, it should be okay to stop and provide feedback to your, your partner, right? So, so long roundabout answer. Yes, there is a mental model for this. I, I haven't put it up on the website, but it's called the feedback loop. Very cool. Cool. So on, on top of that, so we kind of covered two of the different methods of dealing with guard retention. The first one being you frame against the leading edge. The second one being you uh, redirect the leading edge. The third one is what I kind of like to call the beach ball defense, which is basically uh, where you establish a strong elbow knee connection and you just, you know, you just, whatever you do, you do not let your opponent cut you in half. Now, this is not the most active defense sometimes, but it is incredibly effective in a lot of ways. Um, it's, it's especially powerful if you're dealing with a, a, an athleticism disadvantage or just a straight up skill disadvantage. Uh, usually what happens here is you wind up going to turtle uh, most of the time, right? Because turtle is by definition, it's an elbow knee connection. You're just kind of upside down. So th- this is one strategy. You know, if you, if you think, man, my, my opponent is just, they're going to get the better of me. Um, if you turtle or if to some extent, if you grand B roll, what you're trying to do is you're trying to preserve that elbow knee connection, right? That, that's really what you're trying to do. You're basically saying, look, I might not be able to block you from driving this force towards me, but what I can do is prevent you from cutting me in half. And if you can do that, then slowly but surely, a lot of the time you can readvance the position and get back to a good guard. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not as immediate as just meeting the leading edge, and it's not as immediate as redirecting the leading edge, but it remains effective nonetheless and sometimes it might be your best option yeah some guys are really good at turtle uh and they actually think of it as a guard mm-hmm. it's i like turtle as a transitionary piece um in competition to prevent guard passing mm-hmm. yeah you know obviously if you're getting your guard pass you go to turtle your opponent i believe just gets an advantage yeah it's a, not a pass doesn't get a guard pass so um and then from there you can keep your, the transition going but you do expose your back in ways so yeah. it's like you said really important that you keep your structures and you try and create space and get back to your guard as soon as you can i i don't like hanging out in the turtle mm-hmm. i know you do uh, I, I prefer not to hang out in the turtle, but to, to your extent, I I like to use it as a recovery transition. If I'm hanging out in the turtle, the only reason I'm doing it is because my opponent is good enough that they're not letting me get out, right? Um, I, I tend to agree with you from a philosophical standpoint, hanging out in the turtle doesn't feel good. You know, I, yeah. I know that in jujitsu... It's basically a form of guard. Going to turtle is a totally valid strategy. It block. It's not considered a guard pass. So from a jujitsu standpoint, it's fine to just pull turtle. But the reality is that in anything remotely resembling a real fight, you're kind of taking yourself out of alignment to some extent. Because yes, you're you're still you're you're technically strong in terms of where your alignment is, but you can no longer really see where your, the attacks are coming from. Yeah. And if strikes are involved, that's a very bad place to get. So. But but that said, 
that doesn't mean you should never go to turtle. I mean, there yeah. are there are a lot. You of need si- to go to turtle. Yeah, there you are a, a lot of situations where being in turtle is better than the alternative. Like be, you know, giving up turtle is better than having your opponent on your back. It, it's probably better than having them take side control or knee ride on you, yeah. uh, or north south on you. But that doesn't mean you want to stay there, right? Your, your goal with turtle should be to either get out of there, to single the guy, to regard. Uh, but the reality is, though, sometimes you have to go to turtle just because against an opponent who is who's really good, really mobile, and, and is checking your movement, they're probably not going to let you just like regard. You know, you're not going to, it's not going to be like they're on side control and then you just regard and then you're good. You're probably going to have to go to turtle or something else in the interim and then regard from there. Who's the turtle master? Eduardo, Eduardo Tellis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Check uh, him out definitely for more, uh, for more turtle stuff. I, like I said, I only use it as a transitionary piece. Most of the time, I'm gonna either going to try and roll through sorry, roll through for a Gramby or mm-hmm. hopefully entangle a leg from there. Mm-hmm. But still, it's not really where I want it, especially at the highest level where guys are really good at taking the back and, and attacking the turtle. You know, I try and limit the amount of time I go there and yeah. only use it when I have to. A dangerous thing about the turtle is that um, some people, like, like the back mount is a, is a weird position because it's a position where some guys, even at junior level, are really good at it. And if I, when I get tapped out by someone more junior than me, it's usually because they got onto my back somehow. And usually the reason they got onto my back is because I was turtled. So it's, it's something to bear in mind. Um, turtling is always dangerous because even if you're really good at defending the turtle, some people are even better than you at taking the back from there. So it's, it is a dangerous position, but you've got to do a risk reward calculation in your head and it, it might be safer than when you, where you ultimately were. To your point earlier, one thing that you want to do if you are in turtle, you need to immediately secure control of a limb, one of your opponent's limbs. You need to get something. Um, now, what a lot of people think that means is you need to grab their leg, but that's not always the case. Um, grabbing their arm is sufficient, but you cannot leave them totally unsupervised. You know, <laughs> you cannot leave them just running around you doing whatever they want to you. You need to latch on to either an arm, a leg, uh, something so that at least you can check their move, your movement and you have some way to exert a degree of control over them. And um, it's very hard to get out of turtle unless you are controlling at least one of your opponent's limbs, at least from my experience. Yeah. I, I actually really enjoy when people I roll with turtle up because I find, uh, you know, if you're good at inversions and you're good at taking the back, it's like I find a, a really fun way to take the back from there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one of the best... It, on the flip side, one of the best ways to attack a turtle I find is to actually try and get your opponent to invert and regard and then, you know, find different ways to fight the Gramby. And again, there's, there's a lot of different stuff. You can check out, uh, the top game app that Rob's put out. Also, um, in my DVD coming out on the crab ride in the Barambola, we cover attacking an inverted opponent. So there's many different ways you can do that. Usually when someone's in turtle, they're probably going to try and ground out of there eventually. So just following the hip and not getting your leg entangled is one of the best strategies for uh, attacking a turtle and securing a guard pass. Got it. Got it. So we talked about the three different main ways that you're going to get out uh, or, or retain your guard. You know, you can either block the leading edge with a frame, you can redirect the leading edge, or you can just establish a really strong elbow knee connection. Matt, on that topic, is there anything else you wanted to cover? Uh, no, that's pretty good. Just uh, that, I guess that'll include sort of the uh, the recovery phase aspect of, of the guard series that we put out. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you still have questions, please keep them coming. Uh, like we said, we're going to be 
doing videos soon and trying to illustrate some of these things that was up until now we've only been able to put into words. Um, but yeah, remember the three phases, remember the concept of getting in base and setting uh, frames against the leading edge. Um, and uh, yeah, the layers of guard, all the different things that we've gone over. Cool, cool. Yeah, so uh, just to recap what we covered today in terms of the different mental models. First one, of course, was what are the phases of guard? There's the engagement phase, the maintenance phase, and the retention phase. These are basically the topics of this episode and the prior two. We talked about the different layers of guard, meaning that when you're trying to pass someone's guard, you basically need to peel these layers off like an onion. Um, in almost all cases, that means you've got to defeat their legs first, then you've got to defeat their arms, then you've got to just completely flatten them. Um, now, that said, there could be situations where you attack the arms first, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. Uh, normally, once you've gotten past the first phase or the first layer of the guard, usually meaning the legs, that means you're now in the retention phase. We talked about limb coiling, basically meaning that you really never want to extend an arm or a leg or even your neck too far away from your core unless you have an actual purpose for doing so and you know you can do so safely. We talked about establishing an elbow-knee connection, um, preventing your opponent from getting at your tummy effectively is what that means in this case. It's very hard for your opponent to strongly complete a guard pass if they cannot get access to your, your stomach, right? And by keeping your elbows and your knees together, you can deny them that ability. We talked about alignment. Alignment is kind of the, the master theory when it comes to the mechanics of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. There's a reason this was the first episode we did. Basically, alignment describes how almost every mechanical aspect of jiu-jitsu works. If you have any questions about that, reach out. Uh, you can also go back and consult the first episode that we did. And it's also a filter that I always use, especially when I'm incorporating new techniques or I'm testing the le uh, legitimacy of techniques I already use. It's a litmus test. It's Yeah, it's it's uh, everything that you do. You always, you know, you say, where's the posture? Where's my structure? Where's my base? Do I have all three of those aspects? Okay, can I deny my opponent of those aspects? And then, and then from there, I start thinking about what levers can I access and, you know, think, do I need frames? What do I need in terms of mechanics? Uh, but the alignment are really the three main building blocks of everything you're going to do when you're doing jujitsu and sports. Exactly. We talked about force vectors and leading edges. We did a whole episode on this in episode 15. What we're talking about here, and this is especially important in the guard retention phase, your opponent is going to be coming at you and driving force at you in a given direction and understanding the angle that force is coming at and which part of your opponent's body is driving that force. That's the key to a lot of good guard recovery strategies. We talked about solid frames, meaning that when you're going to frame against your opponent, it is usually preferable to do so with a strong structure that doesn't have a lot of joints in it. Uh, this is not always the case. Um, it, for example, if you've got a good lapel grip, maybe this changes, But uh, although you could argue that in itself is a solid frame. But in a lot of cases, for example, stiff arming your opponent may be less desirable than blocking them with a forearm frame. We talked about kinetic chains, meaning that just leaving an arm or a leg dangling is going to be less strong than if you connect it to something. Usually, your other arm or your other leg. We talked about micro transitions, meaning that, you know, really, really the advances in position in jujitsu happen in the space between positions. It's when you're, you're attacking with a hundred different little small variations. Those little wiggling tiny variations are where jujitsu actually happens at a high level. And we talked about the feedback loop, meaning that feedback is most effective when it's provided close to the event at hand. 
That's quite a bit to cover in one episode. So again, we hope that this three-part series was helpful to you guys. Please do reach out if you have any questions or comments. We're always looking for ideas for new episodes. We're also happy, happy to clarify anything. If there is anything that you want to dig deeper into or that you think we didn't cover in enough detail, please do reach out and we'd be happy to put that in the plan. Matt, in terms of what else to cover for today's episode, uh, you had a situation that you wanted to bring up and I thought it, it would, I agreed with you that it would definitely be worth talking about here. Yeah, so I'll just explain the story. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but one of my students also trains at a judo club. Uh, and as you may know, you know, uh, formality inside of different gyms for different martial arts varies a lot. At my school, things are very relaxed. We don't bow in and off the mats. I don't insist people call me professor, you know, all these things. Uh, but some clubs you come in, you line up, you bow in, you know, you call the coach professor or whatever. You tie your belt facing away from the mat, like when it gets real formal. Uh, judo clubs tend to be quite formal. So anyways, the, the incident that my student had, I'll just call him my student, um, he went to the judo club and they were practicing uh, uchikomi, which is just basically speed repetitions for entries to throws. So they're doing their, th their entries and they're not supposed to throw. Um, this is There's actually two incidents, so I'll explain the first incident. So they're doing uchikomi and uh, the guy he's going with is a higher ranked judoka. He's a black belt and um, probably from pro probably the most skilled guy at the school. Okay, and this And this school is not a competitive school. This is a uh, I don't want to say novice school, but, you know, recreational guys go there. It's not, they're not trying to get to the Olympics, okay? Uh, but this guy's pretty high level, right? And my student, he's, um, I believe he's either, I think he's a blue belt in judo and he's a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. So he's got a pretty good ground game. Anyways, so they're doing speed uchikomi and then uh, the, the higher ranked guy, I'll just call him, you know, the instructor because he is a, an instructor there as well. He, on the last rep... And you're not supposed to throw, but on the last rep, he threw a Haraya Gauche, which is like a, an outside wheel hip throw and uh, landed on my student and fell right on his ribs. Now, this is a you're not supposed to throw. So my student wasn't expecting this throw. And um, with a high level instructor, usually you, if you're going to throw your partner, you can throw him in judo. You can throw your partner nicely or you can throw them in a not nice way. And that's usually by landing right on them, right? Check out Ronda Rousey. She, whenever she throws someone, she lands right on top of them. So if you're a high level judoka, usually you can control this. Okay. Uh, my, my student was winded, thought that he had broken a rib and it went unacknowledged by the other instructor. So the other instructor just sort of didn't apologize, didn't, didn't acknowledge it, anything, you know, later in the change room, nothing was said and, uh, just went on. So, you know, if, my, my students sort of assumed that this was sort of a, uh, an, you know, a mistake, we'll say. And there's a, there's a misconception. Well, I guess it's not a misconception, but it's an, an unfortunate truth that at judo clubs, you know, if you injure some or you fall on someone, uh, sometimes you don't even apologize. This is, this is training. This is what it's like. You know, the attitude inside of judo dojos tends to be a lot more dry than inside of jujitsu schools, I find, right? Uh, there's not a lot of like goofing around, horse playing, joking, wisecracks. Um, and you're not always going to be apologizing. And, you know, people that you're training with aren't necessarily, you don't treat them like your friends, uh, which is kind of strange. It's, it's a lot more formal. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so, so he chalked that up as a mistake. And then the next time they went and, uh, 
So now he's doing Randori. This is on another day. He's doing Randori with the same partner. And uh, the bell ends. The person in charge of the, the clock calls Mate, which means stop. And uh, two seconds after the bell, the instructor throws my student again. Same throw. Harai Goshen lands right on him, uh, almost concussing him. So now, now we're at a situation where this is the second time this has happened. Uh, it happened again when my student wasn't wasn't uh, expecting a throw. Usually when the bell ends, you don't throw after <laughs> the bell. Just like if, if uh, a round ends and you're in on an arm bar, you wouldn't crank an arm bar uh, after the bell. So, you know, at this point now, um, this is where my student came in and, and asked me what I would think about this and, and said, you know, if you wouldn't mind, you guys can discuss on the show or whatever. I'd like to hear Steve's feeling about it too. Um, my my thought on this is that uh, it's it's clear carelessness and also just downright uh, it's a dick move to do this. I mean, you know, you can go hard during Randori. Uh, training partners can expect that type of hard training, but when you do it after the whistle and then you fall on him and uh, and you know you're not even throwing him nicely. Like if you're gonna throw after the whistle and you do it nice and it's a you know it doesn't hurt then. Uh, you know, you probably look past it, but even, even just doing it and falling on top and, uh, and hurting them. And then again, second thing, not apologizing after, uh, it's really doesn't make for a good atmosphere. So my students ask me, you know, oh, should I go up to him and say something? Should I go to the head instructor and say something? Um, I mean, I don't know what you think of this, Steve. Honestly, what I would do is I would approach him myself. And again, approaching a higher rank with this type of criticism is frowned upon in a lot of, uh, of a lot of, uh, more formal martial arts. Um, and, uh, I, I think that it's probably the right thing to do in this case, because, you know, we're adults, we all have jobs. If we're not expecting an attack and then it happens, I, is that not the definition of dirty? Yeah. Yeah. So from a, I mean, I'm, I'm not a judo expert, but from a jujitsu standpoint, I guess the equivalent would be your instructor says, okay, we're going to start class. We're going to do 60 seconds of armbar reps. Just do, do the old pendulum swinging armbar drill back and forth. You get a partner, the guy's doing that. And then suddenly out of nowhere, he actually slaps on the armbar and just tries to break your arm, right? Like that, that's ba- And then that happens. Uh, he doesn't apologize. And then next week, the same person does it again, right? Yeah. That's kind of the jujitsu equivalent. So yeah. I mean, from my perspective, you know, every every community has different cultural expectations, and there can be a lot of factors that play into this, right? And jujitsu is generally a very casual, friendly, almost like laboratory-oriented community. You know, you're not encouraged to try to be this badass. In fact, you're often discouraged from being that. That that kind of culture is considered to be contrary to the way that good training happens. Interestingly, and I am not an MMA guy, but from the MMA guys I have trained with, it seems that despite the fact that these guys are legitimate badasses, they have a very similar, friendly, open, communal almost culture. But there definitely are cultures that come from a more rigid, formal background. I mean, that probably the most obvious example is the military, right? You're kind of expected, I assume, not being a military guy either, but you're kind of expected to just shut up and not complain about stuff. And there is some expectation of almost a form of abuse on, on the new people. Um, you do, and, and traditional martial arts do often share this. Um, with judo, for example, if you do come from a very disciplined traditional school, it's not unusual that this kind of thing could happen. Um, 
I, my personal feeling is that regardless of whatever kind of culture you've normalized or whatever you're told is acceptable in this situation, I would find this kind of behavior to be not acceptable. Uh, first of all, because I, I believe that any type of culture that tries to, you know, break you down to build you back up and, and, and allows people to basically be abused at the more junior level, I find that to be kind of toxic and non-productive. This is actually something that happens a lot in cults. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, I've, I've been talking to some people who have done a lot of research on this topic. You know, there are some very, very common tactics that are used when you're, you're effectively getting, you know, brainwashed into a cult. And one of them is that, yeah, a lot of the time you get abused and broken down. Um, and this is kind of a strategy that senior people will use on junior people. It's just straight up bullying, except they've normalized it into part of their culture. Um, I don't think there's ever a situation where this kind of stuff is acceptable. I, I don't think there is a situation where this really benefits any party involved, except for maybe the person who's doing the exploiting. Um, the, the question here is what do you do about it, right? Um, I would not tolerate this kind of behavior to myself or to anyone I train with under any circumstances. So you kind of have... I guess four di or three different options, assuming that you're not willing to put up with this. One option is you talk to the person who did this to you. One option is you talk to the head instructor. One option is you leave. Um, and, and you know, those options are not mutually exclusive. You can go through those in order. Whether you, you know, it's always preferable to resolve a, a problem with the person directly if you think that person is going to be amenable to that. Um, in this case, I don't know either of the people involved, but it sure sounds to me like going to that person directly might not be particularly productive, right? It sounds like this person kind of gets their jollies out of doing this. Sounds if, like it. And if that's the case, <laughs> then a lot of the time trying to go to them and work, like you can't solve a problem man to man with someone if that other person is not behaving like an adult, right? Yeah. Um, the, so then the second option is you can go to the, to the head instructor. And the question then is, to what extent do you believe the head instructor is going to be sympathetic to you versus sympathetic to the person who did that behavior? And also, so the the way that I looked at it was I said, hey, if you go to the guy that threw you and uh, and you say something directly to him, there's a chance, assuming he's not a complete dickhead, there's a chance that he might actually respect you for keeping it between yeah, yeah, you yeah, and yeah. him. Um, whereas if you go to the boss and you say, hey, this guy did this, and then the boss goes to the instructor and it trickles down, now this guy might look at you and resent you because you didn't go to him exactly. one on yeah. one. So I, I recommended that he gave him that courtesy to at least have a conversation with him. Um, and, you know, I mean, realistically, <laughs> and I'm not saying to escalate things in the gym, but but my student is also trained in other martial arts. And I suggested, hey, well, you know, if, he, if he's going to do something like that again, I say, why don't we uh, why don't we have an actual fight here? <laughs> if that's how things are going to be, because, you know, you, if you're going to be throwing me after the bell and, you know, borderline concussing me and I have a job that I have to, you know, we're we're not we're not um, obligated to follow like you said like a hazing culture or a culture where you're you're uh, accepting abuse. Um, we're in a free country and we're paying us for a service at a school. And um, you know I think everyone has the right to play 
and and stay safe within the rules. Accidents happen, but when when you're not expecting something like that, and then someone pretty much it's intent to injure is what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. Uh, I think you have every right to to say something, and I think that the formal attitudes of uh, dry dojo style life kind of goes out the window. Yeah. That's that's my personal point of view. Personally, I would never. I mean, I know that this is some like a Gracie bully proof strategy, but personally, I would never advise at the adult level to actually try to escalate things into a fight because look if, if your pro- if your concern is already that you know this is impacting your ability to do your job the last thing you want to do is get into a situation where now the police <laughs> might be involved and you might wind up with a criminal record like the, the, the reality the reality of modern civilized life is Escalating to violence usually is a lose-lose situation, right? Uh, there's very rarely a situation where it's actually going to benefit you in any way to escalate things further. Uh, one of the things that attracted me to jiu-jitsu initially is that it's an art of de-escalation, which I, I like a lot, whereas most martial arts are about like actually escalating the fight and, and dominating the person. Jiu-jitsu is more about physically defusing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the question is, like, it's always preferable to take it up with the person and fix it, per, you know, man to man, woman to woman. But that comes down to to, how, to what extent do you respect the person and believe that they are committed to changing this, right? And now, if if you're if you feel that there is a good chance that look, you can you can work with this person and you can change it. And, and Matt, to your point, you know, you're always going to respect someone more if they if they take it up with you directly. Mm-hmm. If you think there's a chance, I would definitely bring it up with them. Um, but that said, if you feel that this is detrimental, not just to your well-being, but to the well-being probably of other people in the gym, because if this guy's doing it to you, you can assume he's doing it to other people too. If it's a systematic problem like that, I think that if you can't resolve it with the person, you do owe it to the to your training partners to bring it up with your instructor should you fail to resolve it with that person. Um, that That's the thing that, that is really important to keep in mind here. Uh, when, when you are training at a gym, you are paying for a service. You are not uh, joining a cult, or at least you shouldn't be. You are not you should not be expected to be loyal. You might be. <laughs> you, might, you might be, which is a problem. You should not be expected to put the gym's interests above your own. You are paying for a service. And one of the things that I tremendously respect my instructor for, Sean, is that he always brings us up at class, which is that, you know, loyalty is not expected. You are paying for a service. The only expectation that you should have is that the service is rendered with quality and with care. Um, you do not owe anything to the gym. You have already paid your dues. So in, in this case, I, I think that you have a valid safety concern. My, again, to summarize, my, my approach would be if you think it, it would be productive, bring it up with the person. But if you think this person is a total psycho and that they might actually go off the handle and the situation might get worse, it might one way or the other, I think you owe it to yourself and to your training partners to escalate it to the head instructor. If the head instructor is not sympathetic to the situation or that fails to resolve the problem, I would, I mean, ultimately life is too short. I would go somewhere else. Um, And and frankly, I would leave like a bad Google review or something too, because you, you know, this is actually an area where people can be legitimately harmed. And unfortunately, in some martial arts clubs, they normalize this, that it's like, okay to beat on the young guy. Yeah. Um, I can tell you with this, I've, I've been in gyms where 
someone would come in and they would have this kind of attitude and the head instructor would physically escort that person out of the gym because that kind of behavior was just not acceptable. So I would never train at a place where they, where the head instructor supports this kind of behavior. Yeah. And he told me, he said, you know, I don't want to rock the boat at this club. I like training there. It's a good environment, but this guy is like kind of new. And, uh, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that, um, He's doing this because my student is taking it to him in the Nawaza portion. Very possible. Very possible. I find that when I train with judokas, you know, they love to chuck you. But once it hits the ground, if they have to do jujitsu and and your jujitsu takes them over, it's uh, it's an ego issue. And I find that I find in general and please don't hate me out there. If you hear this, judokas, but I find that uh, judo practitioners tend to have higher egos than jujitsu practitioners. Um, practice is more about putting someone into the floor mm-hmm. and less about helping each other out. Whereas jujitsu is more about, like you said, a, a communal environment where uh, open thoughts are expressed and, you know, there's not really uh, a difference between ranks. As long as you show each other respect and whatever and help each other out, things are good. Mm-hmm. In judo, it's more like I'm trying to let off some steam. I want to throw you into the ground. And uh, if you beat me, and especially if you have an advantage of on me in a place like the ground, and I'm a higher rank than you, um, you know, I might not like that. So I think that the the uh, the gap in skill in the Nawaza portion is probably what's fueling this guy trying to set a, send a message on the feet. Yeah, it could be. And it, it, I always get upset when I hear that people do this. You know, well, I can't beat you at your game, so I'm going to take my pound of flesh somewhere else or some other way. That kind of stuff. I mean, unfortunately, people do it, and it's just not the behavior of a well-functioning adult, right? It's yeah. something that it's not. It's not a martial artist. It's not some. It's not what I would want in my school. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's how you shouldn't act. Yeah, we t- we talked about beginner's mind earlier. You know, you're going to get a lot more out of life if you just shelf your ego and learn from everyone you can, even if technically you think you're better than them. You always have something you can learn if. Your approach to getting dominated like this is trying to come up with other ways to take it to the person. like Or physically hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like at, at that kind of level, you're not, not only are you just kind of a terrible person, but, you know, even from a self-serving standpoint, you're going to get a lot less out of life and you're going to learn a lot less than if you would just put your ego on the back burner. For sure. So I hope that that helps you. And uh, please keep us posted as that goes on. Yeah. Well, this concludes episode 18 and it concludes our guard uh, our guard series. Hope you enjoyed this again. Thanks for all of your wonderful feedback. Please do keep it coming. We'll talk to you next time. All right, guys. Take care.